Welcome to the Madam Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Giselle Arney. I'm a sports medicine physician with a passion for teaching and a mission to support other women with careers in this space. On this show, you'll hear the stories from amazing women in their field of sport and athletics. They'll share their journeys, triumphs, and hardships in order to help and inspire you in your own career and life. Thanks for joining us. Let's do this. On today's episode, I'm talking to sports psychologist for the LA Rams, Carrie Hastings, about doing what you love. Carrie is a licensed clinical and sports psychologist who has her own private practice in addition to being the team sports psychologist for the LA Rams. Through her work, she helps athletes at all levels sharpen their mental performance skills while also evaluating their relationship with their sport. By doing what she loves, Carrie helps athletes get back to doing what they love. We talk about the ways that a sports psychologist could have helped Carrie in her own athletic career and how she seeks to fill that role for current athletes today. How taking detours early in your career can help you define your mission and vision and provides you with skills that transfer to your next step. And Carrie's work helping to normalize taking care of your mental health, not just in the NFL, but in youth and high school sports as well, setting up a new generation with good habits. Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Hi, Giselle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm always excited to talk about women in sports. Yes, I love it. And you are an athlete, have been an athlete. You are in sports psychology or sports psychologist now. But I always like to start at the beginning with the education piece. And I was curious because you got your bachelor's in communications at Notre Dame, I saw. And so I was wondering with your sort of educational journey, what were you thinking as you got started? Were you always thinking sports psych or kind of how did that journey unfold for you? No, I wasn't. Um, I did have a psych class in college, but um, I I didn't know really what I wanted to do. I knew what I didn't want to do. And I was, you know, so involved in sports. I was a hurdler on the track team, which was very time consuming. So, um, you know, you could almost say that was my other major. But uh, yeah, I I didn't know until after I graduated, um, you know, I'd ruled certain areas out. And, um, and then I was living in New York City, I was, I was teaching and living life. And then 9-11 happened. And, you know, that was one of the impetuses, I would say, for my journey, because I, I really wanted to be able to support people on a deeper level and just understand people's journeys. And then combined with the fact I always knew I wanted to work with athletes in some capacity. I didn't know what that would look like. Um, but once I started studying psychology, I I was working with athletes, whether I was volunteering or giving workshops or presentations at conferences. And so the more I learned and the more involved I got along the way, um, it just kind of pointed me in this direction. And when I was doing some of my um, postdoc hours, I was working at a university counseling center. And because I had some experience with athletes, um, and I was the only one there that did, they would refer all the athletes to me. And that was really some of the best experience and training that I got, especially for that young adult age where there's so much transition. 
So much. So what I, this story is just fascinating to me. This comes up all the time on the podcast of people don't always have these straight line career journeys and that's both completely okay and completely normal. And, you know, it's, it's just how things unfold for you. So I think really kind of refreshing to hear. I didn't really totally know what I wanted to do and that's okay. And I just sort of figured out what the next best thing is. And then as you know, world events unfold as big things happen that can start to inform you of what you do or what you don't want to do or how you put things together. So for you, even it started, it sounds like it started more the psych you wanted to help people support people and it turned into sports psych along the way. Is that, is that a fair interpretation? That's a fair interpretation. I will add that we didn't have a sports psychologist when I was in college and it wasn't really as big a thing then it wasn't required anywhere. And had we had one, I think I would have been inspired to be that sooner because I know I could have used one in college and even in high school. I mean, just balancing everything. So it just, when I started learning more about that specialty, it just made sense that that would be a good fit for me. I think that brings up a couple important points. One, just being that sort of representation of when you see and know that that exists. And, you know, when you see, especially for us as women, when you see a woman in that role, that even more lets you know, oh, this is something I could do. And if you don't see that or don't even know that that job exists in the world, right? Like, Mm -hmm. how do you figure out to go pursue that? And then at the same time, to also, I find it so fascinating when people go, you know what, I think this is something I would have needed. This is something that would have helped me. And then you kind of go and fill that role and you're like passing it forward for future generations to help current athletes and current student athletes or, you know, right now you're working with professional athletes and you have private practice, so you're working with all sorts, but you're now getting to be that person for other people that you could have used yourself as an athlete. That's so true. And so much of what I bring to my work now is drawn from personal experience, experiences with, you know, trials and tribulations, wins, losses, perceived failures, injury, um, communication with coaches, you know, camaraderie with teammates, all of the elements of being part of a team and at a competitive level. And so I am able to relate to other athletes using my own experiences. And, and I think that they can feel that. And, and there's that level of understanding, um, which I'm, I'm really glad that I can provide um, from an athlete to athlete perspective. I think that is so important. And I, I, I mean, we have this really great science that says sports and athletics are important for children, but also especially for women, for girls. And to like, there's so many benefits that you get out of it and participating as an athlete. And then to be able to very directly like take those experiences into the work that you're doing and sort of have that commonality of experiences with the athletes that you're working with. That's just a wonderful bonus. Like I'm sure that being a student athlete, especially that gives you almost, whether you went into sports psychology or general psychology, 
you would have learned a lot from your time as an athlete. And it's just sort of like extra special that because you're in sports psychology, it really it really crosses over in a more direct way. Right, exactly. And, you know, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I think everything just kind of lined up perfectly, even the timing, even though I didn't immediately go to graduate school after I graduated uh, college, I think I needed that to live some life first. And, you know, people ask me a lot, you know, what, how did you get to where you are? What, what can I be doing now? And sometimes I just want to say, slow down, you know, it's just, just live, you know what you want to do, you know, you can, you can start putting things into place, but it doesn't have to be all at once or these massive job opportunities or things like that. It doesn't even necessarily have to do with sports or psychology, because like you said, there's so much that's transferable from what the kind of support I provide as a sports psychologist. So, you know, whether it's emotion regulation, dealing with anxiety, you know, all the coping tools that you use to enhance performance, you can absolutely transfer into everyday life. And so, you know, it really is icing on the cake. I love that. I also love the idea of like, it's okay to slow down. (laughs) You do not have to just immediately barrel through, know exactly what you want to do, right? The first day you step it onto the college campus and then stick with that major, stick with that career path and immediately kind of just, you know, gunner all the way through to the top. It's totally okay to take some time. It's okay to take some detours. It's okay to find your way. And I think a lot of us need to hear that message that, that that's okay to do. I have the same thing in medicine where people are wanting to know about, ah, you know, I didn't go right to med school after college. So like, what should I do? Are they going to even want me? And I I was somebody who went right through just, you know, barreled right ahead. And I think that having that self-reflection time, that time to kind of find what is important to you, what matters to you, how best you can serve and find a career that kind of matches up with your values and how you can serve. And even along the way, taking time, it's this weird, I think, systemic societal pressure of here's this one job, you have it for 40 years, get into it, get to the top of the field, whatever society decides the top is, claw your way there as fast as you can. And folks who take different journeys, I think there's a lot of pressure on them to prove themselves and to because they feel like I'm not taking the right path. I'm not taking the fastest path. I'm not taking the normal path when I think that's actually just a crock (laughs) and it's whatever path your journey is. That's your journey. And when you take sometimes these extra experiences, different paths, you bring so much more to the table because you have all these other experiences and life skills and things. And they just add to what you're doing, even if it's it seems like, oh, that's unrelated to my current job. You still bring those skills with you. Exactly. And you have to evolve with it, too. You can't, you know, whether you if you jump right in or if you wait a little while, it's it's not stagnant. So as you gain training and experience, it's, you know, wherever you started or whenever in your own personal journey you started, you have to also line up with where that field is and where. Um, the needs are and acceptance. And and that's something I found for sure. Um, 
One example is just the the use of social media. And um, that wasn't something that we had when I was growing up. And and so there's no template for it. And particularly in sports and with athletes and everybody feels like they should critique athletes and and have a voice. And that, as we've learned, does have such an impact on others. And so that's something I've had to learn along the way after I, you know, was already through my athletic career. That is so smart for both evolving yourself in your career and also evolving along with kind of the career as the career evolves and the social media thing for sure. It's like a double-edged sword. I think on the one hand, I have seen it be really beneficial in women's sports in sort of sharing the news because we know that women's sports doesn't get the press that men's sports does by, you know, 4% to 96%. And it be, it becomes an opportunity for the athletes to have their own platform and to share their own story and to control their own narrative. But at the same time, right, double-edged sword, everybody piles on. It's, you know, out there for the world. Everyone has a comment. Everyone feels like they have to chime in. And that's a really difficult thing, I think, for folks to navigate. Yes. And it's easy to say, oh, just don't look at it. But, you know, it's part of our world now. And and I think that's a tall order to say that. And plus, like you said, I mean, people use it for for marketing. And, you know, I, a lot of the guys I work with who might be trying to start something on the side, um, it's for business purposes and, you know, their own publicity. So it, it does have a lot of benefits. Um, I, I think that with athletes, something I've recognized is, <laughs> which this is a double-edged sword as well, because that perfectionistic type of personality is what makes you great, but that's also how you get in your own way. And so, you know, a lot of times I'll be talking to a player and, you know, they'll say, I just, I played in this game and, you know, I got a lot of good feedback, but then there was this one comment that somebody posted and I cannot shake it. I That's all I keep thinking about and it's bothering me. And so they could have 90 positive messages, but yes. they will hang on to that one. Yes. You're like, I'm an A plus student. We don't tolerate the A minus. We don't tolerate right. the A. Yeah, absolutely. So with your career, as we talk about careers evolving, so you had your time, you decided to go back, you got your master's in psychology, your uh, PsyD in clinical psychology, both at Pepperdine, and then you did, like you said, your postdoc in sports psychology. So what, I'm just curious, what your first sort of job out of training was. I know you have your own practice and you're like, we'll talk about, I'm sure we'll get to team psychologists for the LA Rams, but I was just curious what that early career journey looks like for you. Yeah, I, I started officially meeting clinically with athletes in my, in private practice. And it was scary because, you know, you're on your own and, and you don't have, there just aren't as many of us around. So whereas you might have a case consult with a full practice or even other people in private practice, there aren't as many, you know, people who work with athletes specifically um, or are trained in that area to bounce ideas off of necessarily. 
And so it, there was a lot of learning along the way, but I, I learned so much from the athletes themselves. And so, you know, even through private practice and those early experiences, I really got a feel for the needs that come in and what seems to be supportive, um, you know, the, the language that is better to use. Athletes are definitely unique in, in a sense and working with athletes is unique. Um, it's just a different ball game. Sometimes, you know, I realized I was more as a clinical psychologist, I tend to lean more to a psychodynamic um, approach to cases, you know, so I, I really love digging into someone's past and seeing how themes manifest in the present. But I've learned too, you know, with athletes, sometimes they, they just want, they need to be better now. And so you need to be able to provide some sort of tools, something that they can really bite into and take with them, perhaps for the game tomorrow. So it, I think at first that felt like a little bit of pressure, but now I, I can, you know, I've adapted. I think that's such an interesting point. And I can remember too, in my training, you have these sort of algorithms that you learn of this is the right way to do this. And then you sort of figure out that the world doesn't work that way. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to adapt to different situations, to different settings, to the athlete who has a game tomorrow and has this acute issue right now and figuring out how to really dive into all that nuance. I feel like that is a very sort of advanced and evolved technique that just comes with practice, that comes with learning and being open to that evolution like you talked about. Yes. And, and even identifying like who's the patient not so much at the professional level, but I was surprised that even at the collegiate level, how many parents I was in touch with and <laughs> how involved many of the parents were in their student athletes' lives and wanting to be a part of everything, including their their counseling. Um, so that was that was something that uh, raised my awareness as well. Yes, I, that's always kind of a fun thing with college student athletics. That, that's been my primary clinical work as a college team physician. And they're sort of independent. Hypothetically, they're adults. <laughs> Hypothetically, mm -hmm. they're over 18, most of them. And but still, they're a lot of them are in that weird transition phase of their they haven't really left the nest. And uh, it's an interesting dynamic for sure <laughs> as, as a fun clinical challenge with when you started off then in private practice was that your private practice did you just open a shingle and you were like let's go here we go yeah I I did I I also was I started off within a group doing um neuropsychological testing so that was within a group and then I would get a lot of referrals to my private therapy practice um through that group I was working with and, you know, that's served me as well, um, whether athletes want a, a neuropsych assessment or psychological assessment for, you know, maybe they've had a concussion or maybe it is stress and anxiety or something's going on that's interfering with performance. But but that's been an asset to me as well. And I think it helped me grow my practice um, and 
and just be able to get that deeper understanding of people. And I'm always curious because in medicine, they teach us nothing about business. And so I know for a lot of uh, psychologists often have their own practice and that's just how it works. And and maybe that's a gross generalization of just the women that I've interviewed on this podcast. So let me take back that statement. I have no idea how it works, but I'm curious for you. How did you learn how to have your own business? How did you learn how to, you know, like we talked about market your practice and build the business and do that sort of all the stuff that is involved with taking care of your athletes. That is not the medicine. That is not the therapy, but is, you know, opening and maintaining a practice and building that business. Right. I, and I will be the first to admit I was not, and really I'm not business savvy, you know, not trained in business. And, and so I've, that's another thing I've kind of learned along the way. I think that I, what helped me was that my specialty is just so rare, especially in my area. There just isn't anyone else that does what I do that has the same kind of training and background that I do. Um, and I think that that drew athletes to me um, specifically because as awareness started to grow and, you know, you've got these public figures speaking out about um, sports psychology and getting getting help and, you know, making it acceptable, athletes started to come forward or their parents or even their coaches. And and, you know, when they went looking for someone, it was me. And so um, I I'm glad that I am also able to serve the community in that sense or at least point someone in the right direction. I think the business side of things is a little easier with a private practice, especially when you have an area of specialty that not many people around you do. Now, I just opened a business um, in in our town that's a sports psychology facility um, for the community, and that's different. And I've I've been consulting a lot on that one in terms of you know, best marketing practices and um, even just the structure of my staff and hours and um, and how to do all that, because that was really brand new to me. And, um, you know, sometimes you almost feel like a, a puppeteer <laughs> and putting everything in place. And this new facility that you've built is, you know, with your private practice, I'm imagining it was just you. So you sort of you didn't have to worry about anyone else because you made the decisions and the end, that was it. And so I imagine uh, stepping into this new role of opening a facility that has multiple providers, that has multiple therapists, that has, you know, all sorts of different issues to contend with. That's probably, I feel like we're still coming back to this evolving is new skills that you've been having to figure out and learn along the way. Yeah. And I don't know of another facility or resource like this. So it's not like I could even refer to another business um, like this. I knew I did always know I had that this vision for a long time in terms of wanting to create this um, this resource and um, be able to serve younger communities, not just the professional community, but and, you know, even collegiate community is getting more supported. But, you know, if you look at 
high school level athletes and even younger in youth sports, there really isn't anything in place for them. And so that was one of my goals because I felt there's such a need to um, to give them that support earlier on in their career and give them some tools. And ideally, you know, if they are able to nip some stuff in the bud earlier, maybe it doesn't develop into a long-term bad habit that then you have to break later on. And, um, and I think that's, that's so important because, you know, you really can get set in patterns in and out of sports, obviously. So, um, so really reaching athletes earlier and coaches earlier in terms of best practices, um, cause it's not the same. It's not the same as it used to be. Yes. And I imagine also normalizing it. If you learn very early on that taking care of your mental health is important and normal and just a good practice, then that's going to serve you just for the rest of your life. I feel like instead of you've waited now 20, 30 years <laughs> to have this, like you said, a fe- some sort of festering problem. And now it's going to be a little trickier to deal with. And there's a, enough sort of stigma around mental health that I I like to think, fingers crossed, more and more we're talking about it, more and more we're seeing sports organizations address it, we're seeing position statements, we're seeing, you know, having access at the college level, like you said, we haven't made it down into high school or, or below. So I love that you're like, here's, here's a need I'm seeing in the community. And here's how I can fill that need. Exactly. And I couldn't agree more. And I think the buy-in, which I found at all levels, tends to be the fact that it does improve performance. And so if someone is not maybe ready to touch on some of those mental health issues, but they, you know, they want to improve and so they want some mental skills, well, fine. And if that's what gets them in the door, great. And we can work on that. And, you know, inevitably it, it leads to some sort of psychological, you know, whether it's mental blocks or, um, you know, things interfering that maybe were picked up in the past or from issues outside of sport, you know, family relationships, trauma, um, academics, social issues, then they end up coming up. And, you know, as you build rapport with someone and you get to know them, it's then you become their person. And that level of trust is what's needed for them to return and and have the courage to then dive deeper. I just love that. I, you know, I think um, when I interviewed Becky Clark, who introduced me to you, she talked about being that person and finding a person for yourself, but also being that person for others. And um, I think that that sort of here's the buy-in, here's the hook, here's what gets you through the front door. Let's meet you where you're at. And then you get an opportunity to build that relationship and then to open up and then to really dive into the kind of deeper work that will have a lasting impact. And I just, you know, we're talking about business. So it just strikes me as that like marketing kind of thing. You have to sell them what they want, not what they need. You give them what they need, but you have to sell them what they want. Yeah. Give the people what they want. Yeah, that's that's true. That can be tough with um, younger athletes and parents who are really intense. I've had situations where, you know, parents will bring their child in and say, you know, he really needs to work on his swing. It's something 
mental, um, you know, can you help him improve his swing? And then as I get to know the person, I realize like how immersed in this sport they are and how their entire life is that sport, every conversation. And, and at such a young age for there to be that pressure, those expectations, you know, by the time someone comes to me, that's the last thing they want to talk about. So, and then it's like, you have to convey to the parents that, you know, you might just need to um, slow it down and back off a little bit and let them be a kid, um, which, which can be very tricky when parents have their mindset. They're like, I came in here for you to fix his swing. <laughs> like, right. not to, yeah. Yeah. It, it is. It, that's such a tricky thing of almost that athlete identity, whether you're a little kid who's maybe been too immersed in it, or, I mean, college athlete, professional athlete, like you talked about as a college athlete, that was like your other major was <laughs> being a hurdler, right? When that's your whole identity and something goes wrong or it's not fun, you have an injury or you're just retiring because you have played professionally for a decade and it is just time, even when you choose to go out, when that's your whole entire identity and you have nothing else. Yeah, I that's yeah. so common and so true. And, you know, when I start working with athletes at the professional level, that's one thing like right off the bat when rookies come in I'll do an exercise with them where I kind of do this rapid fire um question firing questions at them and and just about like their favorite things where's their favorite place to travel and and things outside of football and um and it's funny because I I have a, give them a pencil and a piece of paper and they're to write it down, but I only give them a few seconds and you can see some of these questions, like what's your favorite color? What's your, and they sit there and then they start panicking. Like, wait, wait, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that because they've, ne- they've never been asked yes. these questions and they don't have that depth to their personality in terms of even knowing about themselves that much, let alone other people viewing them as a person, not just a player. Yes. Oh my God. That sounds like a really fascinating exercise. I, um, I put on a course, the Women's Career Transformation Academy, and I support women working in sports to help figure out their sort of career identity and build their confidence. And the whole first module, all I'm talking about is identity and like figuring out who you are and having multiple identities and figuring out your values and what matters to you and what is your mission and vision. And and you can have things that matter to you that are not what your job wants to matter to you and not what your job says is the most important thing. And frankly, the more things that you know about yourself and what your values are and what matters to you, I just the better, right? Like we have science that shows when you have multiple identities, you're more resilient. When something happens, like when this career is no longer your career, when your athleticism is no longer an option for you anymore. And so I can just imagine that kind of also the perfectionist of the athletes going, I don't know the answer to this quiz. <laughs> what? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's that's absolutely correct. And it's interesting. I think people would be shocked to know that some of the top athletes don't don't really care about their sport in terms of like not that they're not working their hardest 
and passionate about the team and putting their best foot forward. But, you know, I've had guys tell me, I don't even watch football when I'm not playing. I don't even want to, like, I, I, I don't need my kids to play. I don't. And, and they are the less intense parents of youth athletes. I found too. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So it's ironic, but it's, um, I think there are a lot of assumptions there that would be dispelled if people knew. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, so I did a sports medicine fellowship and, um, I swear, like the team docs, people, they would watch all the sports, all the pros, well, the men's pro sports. <laughs> they were men. They were watching the men's pro sports. They would know all the games. They'd know all the scores. They'd know the team schedule, who's playing who, where they are in the conference. And that was just never me. I love taking care of my athletes. I loved working part of a multidisciplinary team and working with my athletic trainers, my sports psychologists, my strength and conditioning coaches, my nutritionists. You know, I love supporting my athletes, but I I was not in that same sense the sports fan and it it's funny how you're like, "Huh. That's okay. That's just like that's also completely fine. Like you don't have to be the sports fan to do this work." And to do good at it, like you said, to have those football players who work really hard for their team, really care about their teammates, but also are just not watching football on their days off. Right, right. And I'm so glad you said that from a, you know, clinician perspective, because I think a lot of people think that you have to be passionate about sports. You have to know everything about sports or the sport you're working in in order to be good. And if you don't, then you're, you know, you, that's a shortcoming. And that's just not true. I mean, I, I definitely, my private practice have worked with athletes from various sports and some I am not as well versed in. And, and that's where, you know, sometimes that's not a bad thing either, because you can learn from that athlete's perspective, what that sport is like and what matters most is what is it like to them? Yes. And what is their experience like? So it doesn't even really matter how, if you know, you know, the the name of plays and the, you know, all the techniques and skills of the game. It's it's about connecting with the person. Yeah, yeah I just love this. Oh, so, OK, so speaking of professional football players, <laughs> you are the T. I. I knew we would get to this, but you are the team psychologist for the Los Angeles Rams. And I was curious how that came about and sort of how that experience has been for you for, you know, with your life, with your career, how, how have you enjoyed that? Or are there aspects, I guess, that you don't enjoy, but how did that all come about? Yeah, I, well, like I said, I really, I always knew I wanted to work in sports with athletes in some capacity. Um, When I decided to go back to school for psychology, it was like a light bulb went off and and so the more I worked in that field, the more it just felt right. And it, it just it doesn't feel like work even now. And, and I think that's the most important thing is to love what you do. And so I, you know, had been working in private practice and um, and timing was a big factor, too, which was in my favor because the Rams moved to L.A., And they were looking for somebody and the timing of these conversations having started. And all of a sudden, there is some importance being placed on 
total wellness and how that impacts performance. And so they were looking for someone to help build their um, mental health and performance program. And um, they had heard about me through a colleague of a colleague. And, um, and so they, they came and we met and then I met with a few more folks and, and it just turned out to be a fit both ways, I think. And um, it's really, it's just a joy. That's such an awesome story. I think, you know, speaking of having that kind of network and having and building those relationships, especially when you talked about early on in your practice, private practice, that it's sort of lonely. And when you're doing sports, uh, sports psych, and there's not as many people and not as many people in your area with that experience, it's probably pretty lonely. But then this career opportunity came to you because of a colleague of a colleague, that was sort of that initial step. So um, how, how did you or how have you managed to sort of build a network or keep up with a network while you are also in a field that is maybe few and far between and you're sort of in your own private practice and how do you manage to do that? Well, one thing that the NFL does, um, we have a monthly and during the season bi-monthly team clinician meeting where each, um, mental health professional from each team, we get on a, a Zoom and touch base. And there are some specific issues we need to talk about. But then we also connect. And that networking is great because we're all doing the same thing at the same level. And so we can share you know, challenges, ask each other questions, um, give each other support. You know, the, the nature of our season is so unique and can be long and um, you know, faced with all sorts of challenges. And so I'm really grateful for that. And then usually once a year, we, we get together in person for a, for a conference and, um, you know, as well as learning and, um, you know, they'll have speakers and panels and things, but we also get that social time together and where we can connect, decompress, um, all of that. And so that on that level is, is a great way to network, um, and then I still keep in touch, you know, I'm still in touch with a lot of other mental health clinicians. Um, I still do neuropsych testing and, um, and, and I give a lot of presentations now. Um, and so it's, I actually am pretty busy, um, doing, I think since I've been working for the Rams, it's grown for sure. And I hear from more people who want to be in this field and are asking me questions and, and about the journey. Um, it's funny and you'll appreciate this, Giselle. Um, I get asked a lot, um, especially from males, you know, what is it like to be a woman in a man's world? How did you get this job? And I, my, that's one of my favorite questions. Cause my response is I worked my tail off. <laughs> It has nothing to do with, you know, gender. I worked really hard. Now, I may have had to work a bit harder as a woman. I think that's a real reality. Um, but I, I, I got the job and I succeed at this job because I'm really invested in it. And I worked hard and I'm very passionate about it. I think when you have work that you're passionate about, that you believe in, that is important to you, then 
it it can become a lot easier to deal with some of the other things that we as women working in male dominated fields often have to deal with. And you can bring, I think, just a lot more energy to the table when you are deeply passionate about it and it matters to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, couldn't agree more. It's that's really what makes it not feel like work. You look forward to it. It, it helps you be innovative and build upon what you're doing. I think um, I'm so grateful to have started my job at the time I did because I was able to really help build our our mental health protocol kind of from the ground up and make it in a way that fit our team and our entire organization, really. And, um, you know, a few years ago, they updated the collective bargaining agreement. And that was when it became mandated for all teams to have some sort of a mental health resource. They're not all sports psychologists, but um, but every team now has somebody. And that was a big step in the right direction. And they made that very public. And they had done a site visit out to our campus um, shortly before this was all implemented. And they did take some things from our protocol and applied it to some of the um, rules of you know, this position and um, which is great because I think it it allows this position and this role to be taken more seriously. It publicizes it. It makes it OK. I mean, at this point, I'm seeing my primary priority is the players, but I see staff, coaches, um, sometimes people even from the corporate office and and so, and people talk about it. Like, you know, I'll meet with some of them and say, yeah, I was talking to so-and-so and who said they were also meeting with you. And, and it's just, it's not as taboo anymore. And yeah. so it makes it much easier. That's awesome. That's so good. That's what we need mm-hmm. to just normalize it. <laughs> just, yep, here I go. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so my question to you is, how do you support your own mental health? Because you you are helping support everybody else's mental health. And but you're also living in this pandemic with the rest of us. You are also you you have a family, you've got kids, you've got your you've built this new practice that you have just created. Like you're speaking nationally, you're doing so much. So how uh what are your secrets? How do you support your own mental health? That is a good <laughs> I, you know, I, it's very easy to give out all of the tips and tools, but it takes a lot of effort to practice what you preach when you're balancing so much. And I will admit, I don't always do a good job of it. And, you know, sometimes no matter where, if I, my children are definitely my priority and I'm glad that this job allows me to still be mom and, you know, it doesn't interfere with how I would want to be involved in my kids' lives. So um, that's great. I, I definitely, I'm getting better at this, but I, I don't always get enough sleep. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes we'll work um, late at night, but um, I have gotten better about incorporating some more self-care on a regular basis. So for example, um, 
you know, they have these apps for relaxation purposes. Um, you know, there's calm, there's headspace. Um, and so I now, when I drop my kids off at school, I will listen to um, one of those just exercises. Um, they might talk about a certain topic or walk you through a relaxation exercise. And I'll listen to that on the way home. Now, I can't do it fully. I can't close my eyes, obviously. And um, But even that, just giving that to myself helps. It helps me start my day. Um, it really just gets things off to a good foot. If the morning, if, I'd, if I've had bickering kids or maybe it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, <laughs> it helps me de decompress from that. But um, yes, I it's I would say a daily challenge, but I really I've realized um, how important it is. And so how can I enforce, you know, self-care if I'm not doing it myself? Um, so it's a work in progress. <laughs> yes, I love it. I thank you for being honest about it. It is, I think, not easy to always prioritize yourself and your mental health and your self-care. And mm -hmm. as clinicians, we're often really good about the advice and helping other people. And as women, we're often very good about putting other people first, right? And I imagine as a mom, you're very good about putting your kids first. Mm -hmm. And when you fall to the end of the list, sort of all the time, it is hard. And it's hard to add something in, even when it's something that's going to help, like even when it is taking the time to listen to a meditation app or something that you know is going to help, but it still feels like, oh, I have to do this extra thing. <laughs> I have to add right. this in. in it, like, But you know that with the practice, with the time, that it is beneficial. And sometimes we'll be maybe better than others about mm -hmm. taking that time and making that happen. But Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, um, it's, it's funny because I will have a long day or I will sometimes, you know, go into a session and, and sometimes a person will be like, how are you? You know, how, are, <laughs> how's your day going? How was your week? And I sometimes will just like start talking and I'm like, wait, <laughs> it's not about me, but thanks for asking. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, and, and I get my own therapy. I, I appreciate having that uh, routine built into my schedule and having that support, that time carved out for me. Um, that certainly is um, helpful for all areas. Um, one thing somebody said to me once that was really helpful in that mindset, because you're right, I think as caretakers, we tend to put ourselves last. Um, and, you know, I think I was having somebody over and I was like, apologizing for how messy and how much of a disaster our house was. And, you know, they said, well, gosh, you're balancing so much. I mean, something's got to give. And, you know, I thought about that and I thought, that's right. You know, if something is going to give, if it's a messy house, that's not too bad. You know, it's, it's not a person. It's not anything that's jeopardizing anyone's health or safety. And, and it won't always be that way. So um, it's, it's reframing things that can be really helpful too. Yes. I love that. Oh, it's so true. It is probably a little pick your battle, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. the reframing and, um, but I love this. Excellent, excellent advice to share with people. 
Okay, so I ask everyone, but what particular challenges have you faced in your career? What things have been difficult for you that you've had to overcome or that you still struggle with today? Well, I think maintaining a healthy balance is always a challenge. Um, You know, this year in particular, we had the longest season possible for a good reason. But, um, you know, that balance became extra tricky the closer we got to Super Bowl. Um, So that's one thing. I think in my job, another thing that's unique is that, like I said, I might be seeing some staff or coaches as well. And then, you know, you're also co-workers. And so, you know, you have to be able to respectfully um, maintain those relationships and those dual roles because, you know, I see them in other places and we talk, um, you know, about other things outside of maybe the, the clinical space. And, so that can be tricky, especially um, let's say if one employee is talking about issues with another. Yeah. And I've had times when I'm working with both people. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't know that when they were coming in, but it's that can be really hard, you know, and then you're around both of them and you kind of know what's going on and you don't know. They don't know the other person has, you know, been talking to me as well. So. That can be tricky, but it we make it work. Yeah, that's interesting. That is really interesting because if you're the only one or you're one of a very small staff, it's not like you can have separate sports psychologists for the coaches versus the players versus the staff versus trying to keep all that different. So that must be an interesting, interesting challenge. Yeah. So what particular triumphs have you had in your career? What things are you really proud of? Oh, gosh, I think um, one of the biggest triumphs is seeing, and this has happened multiple times, I work a lot with injured athletes. And sometimes somebody's out for a few weeks. Sometimes somebody's out for the year. And, And that you're starting at a very low place. Um, and they can't imagine, you know, how am I going to wait out these next nine months or however long their recovery and rehab is going to be and going through that with them, which takes so much patience and there's no way to fast forward that. And then, um, when we get to maybe a year later to see them thrive, on the field and have gone through all of the emotions and the pain, both physical and internal associated with having been injured and missed time is so gratifying. And to feel a part of that journey, um, you know, is really amazing. And to watch that transformation. And, you know, most of the time the guys come back even stronger than before they were injured. And, you know, to help them through that, whether it's, and that's when you go to a lot of the, it's, it's a real balance between the sports psych techniques and the mental health support. Um, But that I think is always feels like a triumph to see them then back on the field celebrating, especially when they're celebrating a Super Bowl (laughs) and um, they've accomplished their dream. And um, yeah, that's really rewarding. 
I love that. I love that so much. I think that, you know, we're understanding more and more and focusing on the mental health of return to sport and what it means to be injured. And like we've already talked about, like what happens when you're injured and you can't play with your athlete identity and dealing with that. And so in some instances, uh, not that anyone would ever wish for a, you're going to be out for a year, but if that's a time that you really can focus on the mental health, it's not just about the healing tissue. It's not just about the mechanics. It is really also building that mental health, supporting mental health, like through that time period, but also building it up even better for when you come back. So I love that. That's right. just, I imagine, wonderful to see. And yes, especially when it's, when it's Super Bowl time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> special. Yes. It is true. I mean, they're just more armed and ready for anything that comes their way in and out. Yeah. Okay. Love this. All right. Last question. What career advice do you have for other women in their career journeys? I would definitely encourage women to go for whatever they want to do, whatever they want to be. And don't let yourself or anyone else discourage you from a particular role because you're a woman and because maybe there was a stereotype because no woman has ever done that job before. You know, I, I think we're still kind of growing out of that and we definitely are still treated differently. And the only way to, to change that is to power through it and to prove, you know, that we deserve better. And so, you know, whatever, you need to do. Don't shortchange yourself. You know, I think um, use the support of others and, you know, even like being who you want to be before maybe you are that person in terms of a job role, um, because you've got to start exuding certain qualities and you've got to be able to believe in yourself and that you can do it before you can take that on. I love that advice. I've loved this whole conversation. Thank you so much, Carrie, for coming on the podcast, for sharing your career journey, for sharing your advice. I think this has just been really wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Madam Athlete Podcast. A big thank you to Dr. Carrie Hastings for sharing her story here. As always, you can find out more about Carrie in the show notes at madamathlete.com. I'm over here doing what I love in supporting women working in male-dominated fields by elevating women's stories and voices and providing career coaching tools to help women build their confidence and take ownership of their careers. And it has been a lot of work to get to episode 101, or as I like to think of it, the first episode of the next 100 episodes. But because I love it, because this fits in with my vision, because it aligns with my values, the work is meaningful. And the motivation to get through the hard parts or the less fun parts of the podcast is easier to tap into. One of the resources and free coaching tools that I have for you is an exercise that helps you identify and name your own personal values. If you go to madamathlete.com values, you can download this free exercise and start making sure your work is in alignment with your own values or how you can get it there so that you can also be doing what you love. So check it out, madamathlete.com slash values. And as always, thanks for being here. I appreciate you.